Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. The Turkish-born author of How to Lose a Country, Ece Temelkuren, is many things to many people. Democracy activist in exile, social media personality, award-winning newspaper columnist, best-selling non-fiction and fiction writer. So when we spoke about how to lose a country, I began by asking her to tell me who Ece Temelkuren actually is. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Ece Temelkuran. Ece, you've written a new book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. You're a Turkish journalist now living in exile. I don't know if that's the right word, exile in Zagreb in Croatia. It's a very personal narrative. It's not an academic book. To start, not all our listeners will be familiar with you. You have a huge social media following in Turkey. Some of your fiction books have won awards but not everyone will know who you are. Who is uh, Ece Temelkuran? <laughs> that is a very, very profound question. <laughs> but very briefly, I was a journalist in Turkey for 20 years, uh, and meanwhile, I published literary books as well. Some of my books are published already in English and in European languages. And I'm quite new in the United States. A novel of mine was published two years ago at the time of Mead Swans, and now, How to Lose a Country will be my second book published in the United States by HarperCollins. I'm living in Zagreb. I'm not an exile. I don't like to call myself like that. But obviously, I am here due to the fact that Turkey is going through some interesting times. Yeah, that's the small version, I think, of who is Ejeta Macron. When you say you're living in exile in Croatia, is that because... You would be put in prison if you lived in Turkey? Do you fear for your personal safety? Or are you just more comfortable now living out of Turkey? The word exile is something I reject, in fact, because it brings this emotional and political baggage that I am not willing to carry on my shoulders. I live in several countries, in Tunisia, in Lebanon, in Paris, in Oxford, to write my books. And I try to see this period of my life as another one of those that I am writing books and I am away from home. You know, my life has always been split in between two words, road and home. And I try to see this period as well as one of those times. I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, I would be imprisoned automatically, but the unpredictability of the political situation in Turkey for people like me is quite exhausting. 
and it gives you no time and space to concentrate on any kind of intellectual work. And you will see this in the United States as well. When the political sphere is terrorized to a certain degree, the subtlety of intellectual word vanishes. And, you know, when polarization takes over, it becomes yes and no. And unfortunately, intellectual work takes place in between these two words. And that is quite impossible at this point in Turkey. One of the early interviews in this series was with the English writer, pundit David Goodhart, who divides the world now into what he calls uh, anywheres and somewheres, people who live everywhere like you, many different homes in many different countries and cultures, and people who are very much located in one place. In terms of your identity, do you still consider yourself essentially Turkish or Middle Eastern or Muslim or, or someone from Istanbul? Yeah. I think these identity politics wasted our time you know, globally for such a long time that I don't I'm not interested in them anymore. When they ask me about my identity, I always answer the same way. My name is Ajay and that's my identity. But when it comes to anywheres and nowheres, it's a big topic at the moment, both in Europe and in the United States. People like to call me exiled, for instance. But when they say that, I automatically want to ask this question. So what makes British people who are queuing up in front of the European embassies to get European passports before Brexit. They should be counted as exiles. Or how about those Americans who feel that they are no longer living in their country anymore after Trump's election? What would that make those people? You know, even though they didn't leave their homeland, they're a bit of exile in their own country as well. I mean, that goes for people who have critical minds everywhere in the world. I don't think French people who think that Marine Le Pen is a danger or German people who are uh, concerned with the rising right-wing populism, we are all in a little bit of an exile situation here, even though we, some of us are living in their own countries. And that is why, in fact, I wrote the book, How to Lose a Country, because it doesn't matter if you leave the country or not. The countries and the political and social sphere in those countries are changing dramatically. And that transformation is leaving out people like me or probably you. (laughs) Yeah. So in your book, you have this wonderful term in inverted commas, real people. I don't know if any, in your terms, real people listen to this show, but if they do, they'll be thinking, oh, this edge is just another example of a kind of international intellectual elite. You know, she's got her fancy book deals. She's a nonfiction writer. She's got a book launch in the United States. She lives in North Africa and Croatia in the United States. What does she know about the struggle to put food on the table and feed a family? How would you respond to the critique from, quote unquote, the real person of Edge? Actually, last week I was in Sydney and I was telling a friend, if somebody ever calls me a cosmopolitan elite once more, I'm <laughs> going to rub this economy class boarding pass on his face. <laughs> So you mean uh, you're not part of the elite because you still travel economy to Sydney? You still go to Sydney, though. I mean, that's pretty fancy. <laughs> Besides the joke, in fact, we should be very careful about this polarization, this divide that is imposed by right-wing populists, the oppressive elite and the real people. In the beginning, this elite, the word elite depends on sort of a class issue, uh, you know, financial situation or being able to 
travel around the world and so on. But as time goes by, as the right-wing populist leader sees more and more power, the parameters that define who is elite and who are real people changes. And then at the end of the day, it comes to the word obedience. If you're obedient to the leader, you are a member of the real people. If you're not obedient, even if you are poor or if you're undereducated, you are still an elite. I try to explain how that transformed in Turkey, that divide of elite and real people. And I am seeing the same things happening in Europe and the United States as well. So I think we should be rejecting the divide entirely. Otherwise, it becomes unbeatable as the right-wing populism gathers more political power. Is the country in your title, How to Lose a Country, is that country really Turkey or is it everywhere? It is everywhere. It is everywhere. And one of the reactions I get for the book as I'm launching the book in several languages in Europe is that people tell me I feel less alone. And I heard this in Netherlands, in Paris, in Germany. Everywhere I launched the book, even in Sydney, in fact. So I think people feel the same things that I felt 10 years ago in Turkey. And I wrote the book for them not to waste all the time that we lost in Turkey and get their, get their shit together to defend the democracies that they are living in and they have taken for granted for such a long time. And also for them to notice the moral decay that they are witnessing at the moment alongside with the political insanity. Edge, a couple of weeks ago, our mutual friend uh, Soli Ozel was on this show talking specifically about Turkey. And he noted that there is one difference between the Turkish middle classes backing populism there and the middle classes backing populism in the United States and Britain and Western Europe, more advanced industrial democracies. In the West, those middle classes are in decline, whereas in a country like Turkey, they are coming from the country, but they're actually doing rather well for themselves. Is there a difference between the kinds of people backing populism, the so-called real people in Turkey, Mm. and those in the West? There are uh, many differences. But with the book, I try to come up with the common global patterns of right-wing populism, how the logic works and how the main mechanism of right-wing populism works, despite the fact that every country has unique conditions. It is only natural to say that every country is different. There is a common pattern that is operating exactly the same way in every country, even though those countries are completely different demographically in terms of history and so on. And at the end, it comes to deciding to defend the representative democracy or not. And when it comes to that point, no country is different from the other and no democracy is more immune to right-wing populism than the others. Sometimes this sounds quite absurd to those people who think that uh, maturity of democracy and the strength of state institutions will protect them from right-wing populism. But actually... As far as I observed in the recent years, the democracies and the societies respond to right-wing populism almost in the same way, with excess of emotion, being outraged, shocked, surprised, appalled, and so on. And then, without even noticing, they fall into the game of right-wing populism. So I wanted to decipher this game of populism 
for those people who are too confident in their own country's strength or their democracy's maturity, in fact. And it seems from the book that you're very well equipped to do that, not just you, but the experience of your family. You, you cite your grandmother and your mother and their experience with authoritarianism. Why has Turkish history equipped you so well to understand how to lose a country and to make sense of this kind of global shift from democracy to dictatorship? I'm coming from a secular leftist family. It equipped me very well in terms of resistance and in terms of being better than the ruler and so on. I'm, in fact, a project of a secular Turkish Republic with a source of leftism, obviously. So that is why we are very good at Kipt. My grandmother taught the you know, village children how to read since she was 16. And then my mom was a teacher as well. Also, she's an artist and she has been in prison. And my father rescued her from prison as a young lawyer who's also a leftist and so on. I was born into this family. And when you are born into such a family, the politics is not something happening in the capital, but actually it is something happening in your living room. But then now I see that uh, since all the European and American countries and United States is being politicized as they have never been before, I think for them, politics have become something that's happening in the living room as well. I hear uh, people from the United States telling me they were having a fight in Thanksgiving because of Trump. Or I hear people from Europe telling me that they stopped uh, talking about politics with their relatives. The current situation in the world is making politics more and more personal. It creeps into our personal lives, which is uh, quite unprecedented for Americans, maybe, or European countries. So I think they'll be very equipped uh, <laughs> soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> Anne Applebaum wrote a piece in The Atlantic last year describing the death of conversation in Poland that the right and the left now in Poland aren't talking to one another. Our guest on last week's show, Jeff Jarvis, the well-known internet uh, guru, mm -hmm. describes democracy as a conversation. Is that the great crisis that we've lost the ability to converse with one another? Is that one of the steps from democracy to dictatorship, the death of conversation? Or is that a kind of meta theme in this shift? Well, uh, we have been exercising a certain kind of democracy since 1980s. Since 1980s, uh, the moral and political values of neoliberalism have been dominant. And in accordance with that, our democracies have been gradually stripped off of social equality to start with. So the gap between the poor and the privileged have been widening like it has never been before. This is one reason. And also this worshipping power, which is the central value in neoliberalism, has become so dominant that the weak is seen as the loser. It's not a coincidence that Trump keeps talking about losers. He refers to this value set of neoliberalism, I think. So our democracies have been rotten. So there is a point when right-wing populists say that the corrupted elite, uh, the corrupt system, and so on and so forth. That is why it resonates with millions of people. It is not completely wrong. Unfortunately, they are the wrong people to say that because they are not promising a better future or a better democracy, but less democracy and a darker future.
So, AJ, the subtitle of the book is The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. Sounds like a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> Lay out those steps very briefly. What yeah, are those seven sure. steps? The first step is uh, create a movement because a uh, political party is over and establish this movement upon the world, word real people, which would be very familiar with Europeans and Americans at the moment. And then ask for respect and get yourself recognized by the conventional politics and get yourself a place in that table of conventional politics and then on terrorize the space, the political space, so everybody gets really mad or surprised and appalled. So this is a, an Urban, a Salvini, a Trump, an Erdogan, exactly. right? You know, as soon as the, you give them a place on the table of conventional politics, they elbow you out from that <laughs> table. Right. Second is disrupt rationale and terrorize the language. I wrote a fictitious conversation between Aristoteles and a typical right-wing populist in that chapter to show people how they shouldn't be talking to a right-wing populist spin doctor. Third step is remove shame. Immorality is the new black. I do think that it, what we are going through is not only a political chaos, but a moral one as well. So we will have to defend the basic humane moral values while we're trying to get over this political madness. It seems like the crown prince of this, if that's the right word, is Vladimir Putin and this disappearance of morality. That is, in fact, very interesting because all these leaders, as I told in the book, are respecting Putin and Putin are respecting them back. So there's an international sort of respect network among these leaders. So they are copying each other. That's true because, you know, they are so limited in their creativity that actually they are taking the slogan from each other, make your country great again. And maybe some of these people have just been watching too many shows of Sopranos or Goodfellas <laughs> or The Godfather. Exactly. And also I'm now reading D.B., a biography of Benjamin yeah. Right. Yeah. He's the same. Yeah. Saffer, amazing book. I am now thinking that actually before Putin, there was Netanyahu. <laughs> He's yeah. good at this uh, real people elite, you know, divide as well. Okay. So number four. Fourth step is dismantle the judiciary and political mechanism, which happened in the United States before anything else. So it was very interesting. The United States jumped from first step to fourth step, in fact. You know, when Trump started to mess with the state institutions and so on. Isn't this a little over-dramatized? I mean, okay, Trump wants to dismantle the judiciary. I'm talking to you from Berkeley, California. There doesn't seem to me, at this point at least, that much evidence that the judiciary has been dismantled, that he's had any success at all. Where's your evidence for uh, that? He's meddling with it, and that was quite unthinkable like five years ago, wasn't it? Uh, now it is becoming normalized that he's moving uh, some state officials from here to there. He's firing people and then getting some other people that he finds you know, great or tremendous and so on. My point is here is not you know, complete dismantlement of the state institution. But as soon as the leader starts meddling with the state institution, in the eyes of the people, the state institution becomes something like a paper tiger. Probably many people in the United States think that, oh, wow, CIA or FBI were not that strong, not as strong as we imagine them now. Or, you know, the Congress is, you know, had to come together to stop him doing things. You know, the government shut down the longest in American history. 
that happened. And in order to stop it, the entire American establishment had to come together. These are new things. So bit by bit, it is normalized that state institution can be meddled with. This is how it started in Turkey as well. It didn't happen overnight that the entire uh, political and judiciary mechanism was dismantled. It started with this normalization. But he cannot do that. You know, the threshold of mm. impossibility became higher and higher as the day went by. So I am actually calling people to be careful about this normalization as well. But, you know, when you say, but he couldn't do it, it's an interesting statement. But he tried and he did it up to a certain point and then somebody stopped him. So how about, you know, he does these things on daily basis? Would there be enough political energy to stop him in time? Uh, this is my point. Okay, so number five, the fifth step. Number five is something I like very much. It is about political humor. When does laughter becomes a too comfortable political shelter that we don't want to go out? As soon as these political leaders appear, we start making jokes about them. We mock them. It's a defense mechanism to calm down our anxieties. And then we use them to feel strong and you know powerful against this wave of right-wing populism. But then it becomes something like a tool to make ourselves feel secure even when we are not. So how does political humor operate in times of rising right-wing populism? That's the fifth chapter. And the sixth step is design your own citizen. If we let right-wing populism stay in the power long enough, as we did in Turkey, they create their own generation. And they also sort of harvest people from other political stands to act together with them. So they are, in fact, designing their own citizens. And People like me feel like they are not citizens anymore. And the last step is design your own country and get rid of all the others, all the ones who do not support you, which is the saddest phase that I want no European country or United States to face. Let's go back to the second one. I think that's particularly interesting, this idea of the crisis of terrorizing language. Is that why writers like yourself are so important? Well, I don't feel important <laughs> to start with. Well, you're fighting back. I mean, the, the obvious question out of all this is these steps aren't inevitable. And the issue is how to push back against them, how to save democracy. And as a writer, I assume that your role is fighting back against the linguistic terrorism. Exactly. You know, when the power is primitive, the opposition becomes primitive accordingly. For instance, this is a good example. There was a case in Turkey. It was revealed that in a religious foundation, dozens of kids were raped. And this religious foundation was supportive of Erdogan. So therefore, Erdogan supported this religious foundation. And they, in fact, prosecuted the reporter who reported about these rape cases. So all of a sudden, as opposition, we found ourselves saying this, raping kids is not good. I studied law. I'm a lawyer by education. I wrote several books and my intellectual capacity is far better than saying this. But in a world, in a country like that, you know, you're obliged to repeat this every day. This somehow paralyzes your mind. The power uh, makes you primitive and it's a very annoying thing and exhausting thing as well. There is no subtlety there. There is no 
sophistication at all. And your brain wants to do something that it is designed for, which is thinking, analyzing, and so on and so forth. So it was almost like an intellectual reflex for me to go out of that madness and to start seeing right-wing populism as a giant machine. And that is why I wanted to decipher the mechanism. Because if you are lost in that mechanism, you find yourself just shouting no, 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 which doesn't require a lot of intellectual capacity, in fact. And it strips you off your capabilities, intellectual and emotional capabilities. You become this angry person. And the most defining aspect of your soul becomes anger. It is something that people of Turkey knows very well. And they are exhausted of being angry and their language being terrorized and their rationale being disrupted. Now it's easier to explain what happened in Turkey in the last 10 years because Europeans and Americans live something similar. We had to talk to these people who believe that the world is flat. And when we show them the picture of the world, the planet, and it's round, as you can see, as a response, they told us, but we believe it's flat. So we have to prove them seeing is better than believing or more valid than believing. So it becomes like a conundrum that you cannot get out and you are constantly subjected to this mobilized and politicized ignorance, so to speak. It's not easy to survive. And uh, throughout that time, the most important thing you find out is your language, the language you're using is terrorized as well. This is what I mean by terrorizing the language and disrupting the rationale. So how to lose a country then is a kind of resistance. It's, it's elegant, it's angry, it's funny, it's written in an, in, in an incredibly engaging way. It's an excellent piece of work. Who uh, some of the people who sort of inspired you in terms of writing as an act of resistance? You know, Orwell comes to mind, although your work is different from Orwell. What other writers, maybe uh, some of the Central European writers who wrote against totalitarianism, Soviet totalitarianism in the late part of the 20th century, who else have inspired you to write How to Lose a Country? Oh, there are several names. And while writing the book, I think I read almost all of the books that have been written about right-wing populism in the recent years. But what inspired me most is the lack of books that talks to people. Because many books written about right-wing populism are academic works, and they are almost talking to each other, except for a few, for a very few. Which ones aren't, do you think? John Miller's book is a good one. Kasmude's book is a very good one. I think there will be several other books who will be talking to people and who will be telling people how to protect themselves, in fact, how to protect their democracy as well. Mm. So I wanted to write a personal book I wanted this book to sound like, okay, my friend, this is how we pull ourselves together because I need you, you need me. I am experienced in this and you are new, but you have the stamina, therefore I need you. And we can get rid of this only if we cooperate on a global level, because as you can see, the right-wing populist leaders are cooperating on a global level. So why don't we do that as well? Huh? You know, this is the main emotion or idea behind the book. Fighting back against sort of Steve Bannon's international right-wing network, in other words. Yeah, exactly, because it is so obvious that they are getting in touch and they are collaborating. So it would be only naive to think that this is not global and we can beat this 
East on national level. No, we cannot. No, we cannot. It's a huge thing and it's transforming our entire culture of politics and our understanding of humankind as well. Because as time goes by and as you are subjected to the banalities of this kind of politics, you start losing faith in humankind. You start thinking that maybe the humankind is banal at the end. You say that the banality of evil has been replaced by the evil of banality at one point in the exactly. book. Exactly. And I think this is an important transformation. We thought that all this banality is funny, something uh, you know, limited and so on and so forth. But then that banality became the president of the United States. That banality has become significant political leaders, turned to political figures, leaders, whatever, in European Union. And now they are ruining the entire idea of Europe. So it is not just banal. It is the evil of banality, what we are dealing with. And of course, it was uh, Hannah Arendt who came up with the term banality of evil. She perhaps had the most profound insights into the nature of 20th century totalitarianism. If she was around today, do you think she'd be surprised? Is this 21st century version of totalitarianism different from the 20th century version? Hannah Arendt was a woman with a distinct sense of humor. (laughs) And I like her because of that as well. And she wrote volumes about political thought, about fascism and so on. And at some point in one of her books, she says, it is stupidity at the end. (laughs) So I think she would say, oh my God, same stupidity again. (laughs) She would be really bored, I suppose, (laughs) to see all these things. Finally, Eji, it's hard enough to write a compelling nonfiction book, but you're also an accomplished fictional writer. How has that helped you master the craft of nonfiction and vice versa? Well, I consider myself as a storyteller. So I am telling stories. Some of them are real, some of them are not. But all of them, I consider them to be truthful. So when you're telling a true story and when you're telling a story that you have to tell, I think that compels people to read it because that genuineness, I guess, authenticity passes to the reader. And I don't have to pretend that I suffered from political situation in Turkey because I did. And many people I know did even worse than me. So that emotion and the emotion of urgency, uh, the feeling of trying to warn people, (laughs) I think that passes to the reader, and because it's real, because it's real. So one writer, finally, uh, Eje, one writer who's really inspired you in your career. Would it be perhaps a Latin American magical realist? Would it be (laughs) someone from Turkey that we don't know? Who is it? It is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, in fact, among several others, Jack London as well, because these were, you know, journalists and novelists. I think they were the few people who knew that reality is far amazing and incredible than the fiction. So they always depended on the strength of realness and the facts. So I think I found them most inspiring when I was very, very young. And several women writers, by the way. (laughs) You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. But please stick around as Andrew will be right back to conclude this episode with his five takeaways. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. 
DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keen is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview. So who exactly is Eje Temelkuren? She's everything I suggested in the introduction. Newspaper columnist, social media personality, political exile, best-selling non-fiction and fiction writer. Above all, she's a cosmopolitan, as much at home in Turkey, Croatia, Australia, or the United States. Thus, her rejection of the parochial cul-de-sac of identity politics. She's really a real person. And her new book, A Spunky, Sparkling Polemic Against the Populist Cult of Real People, is all these things too, plus more, much more. It's one of the first authentic responses to the siren song of anti-democratic populism. How to Lose a Country is a completely serious book because it isn't completely serious. In contrast to many of the stodgily virtuous academic books written about the global crisis of democracy, Temel Curran's new book is simultaneously edgy, engaging, and erudite. It's the non-fiction work of a fiction writer who, like her literary heroes, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Jack London, has found the real world to be as richly astonishing as the most magical fiction. Timur Curran's seven taxonomies of global populism are all valuable, but I'm particularly taken by her second step in the transition from democracy to dictatorship, what she calls the terrorization of language by the populists. She's right to argue that you can only get what she calls the politicization of ignorance through the willful destruction of language. And that's why How to Lose a Country is such an important book. Not only does it warn in good Orwellian fashion about the political consequences of linguistic terrorism, but like Orwell's books, it's written with both simplicity and style. I really like her third step, the removal of shame in politics. Immorality, she says, is the new black. The fathers of populism, from Putin to Netanyahu to Trump and Erdogan, yes, they're all male, have all taken great pride in rejecting the very idea of morality in politics. Or rather, for these shameless men, success is morality. The ends justify the means. And what this ends up with, she warns, remixing Hannah Arendt, 
is the evil of banality. So how to fix populism? How to win our countries back? Here, Temel Curran is less prescriptive. She hints at an international alliance of real people like herself, united in their opposition to the dismantling of democracy around the world, and certainly how to lose a country in laying out its chilling taxonomy of the global shift from to democracy to dictatorship provides the beginning of this alliance of real people like Eje Temelkuren against populist banality. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode, and from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.